Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Brandt, President and CEO of AIM Employers Association, and welcome to This Week at Work. Welcome to This Week at Work, the only show about the workplace that offers you front row seats and a microphone featuring experts in human resources and employment law to bring you practical, timely, and accurate insights so you can more effectively lead your organization. It's Thursday, July 13th, episode 239. Today, we continue our conversation on how to level up with generational diversity. We talked about cultivating curiosity to appreciate the changes workers have experienced over the years. So we've invited Tanya back to take us to the next level with tips for developing culture that drives collaboration and healthy relationships. She'll offer insights into feeding the curiosity of our workers with the what and why, while at the same time being flexible with the how. We invite your participation through questions, comments, and polls. All this and more on this week at work. All right. Welcome back, everybody. And Bert Garland back on the program with us as a co-host today. Bert, we appreciate you coming back. I'm not sure where you've been, what part of the country you've been in, pulling all-nighters. Last time you were here, you were coming off of a, a very long but successful uh, union-free campaign. Uh, how you been, Bert? I'm doing well. I'm back in town last week. Uh, it was vacation. Uh, we were enjoying some time in South Carolina. Although, Phil, I've got to tell you, I, I, I've always thought St. Louis was humid. Uh, uh, wow, that's a different ballgame down there. Yeah, now the further south and the further southeast you go, the more humid uh, we get. But it is, uh, we get our share of it. We don't need any more of it. But that, welcome that back to the program. Sure. While you were gone, there were a lot of things that happened. I don't want to waste too much time. I do want to get right into it. We also have Tanya Zion back with us by popular demand. Welcome back, Tanya. I'm excited to hear some of the things we're going to talk about. A little bit more practical approach uh, today when we talk about employee engagement and, and how we get people uh, in the workplace uh, more involved in, in what we're trying to achieve. But Bert, let's get things kicked off with lawyer on the clock. I'm going to ask uh, Nick to do the pre-roll, but I really want to hear some of your insights on this Supreme Court rulings that we've had. All right, we're gonna do we gonna do that, Phil. Before we do the polls, or you want to do polls? Oh, you know, thanks, Bert. I'm just so excited (laughs) to have you back. You're right. Uh, Let's get these polls introduced. I think they're great questions. I particularly like the second question. The first one is, what do you think is the biggest determining factor for work ethic? Um, We give you a few options to select from here, and then this is a question I really like, um, and I'll get back to it when we get on uh, on topic with uh, Tanya, but. What group do you believe would best would be the best at defining a company's ideal culture? And it talks about leadership, employees, human resources, sales, and external uh, consultants. Uh, so I'd like to have your opinion on that. And now, Nick, can you roll lawyer on the clock? All right, it's time to look into what's trending in employment law. Lawyer, you're on the clock. So, Phil, last time I was on the show, we uh, ended the show and literally a few minutes after the show ended, the Supreme Court of the United States came out with some very, very significant decisions for uh, labor and employment lawyers. It's easy for us to kind of kind of nerd out over some of these decisions. Hey, I did not call you a nerd. Pick them apart, look at them in detail. And so I do want to talk about them today. I know that uh, Tom Chibnall, who filled in for me last week, talked a little bit about 
one of the cases we're going to talk about today, but there's a second one that I want to cover. I'll do that first, and then we're going to talk about uh, the one that Tom talked about last week and specifically how it relates to the private employment setting. So the first one of these cases is a case called 303 Creative versus Elenis. And in that case, it is six to three, six two three decision. The U.S. Supreme Court held uh, that the First Amendment prohibits states from forcing website designers uh, from designing websites with messages with which the designer disagrees. In that ruling, the court sided with the wedding website designer who sought to refuse to design wedding websites for same-sex couples because her religious beliefs oppose same-sex marriage. So this is really uh, a quite, quite a, a you know, significant decision. Uh, it has impact on, it has significant impact for the employment uh, uh, setting. So in this case, uh, the original case, the, the, or the Supreme Court held that the Colorado law, which prohibited public accommodations from discriminating against individuals based on sexual orientation, could not compel a wedding website designer to create websites for same-sex couples despite her opposition to same-sex marriage because her work is expressive speech that is protected by the First Amendment. Okay, so that to that's me is very the interesting. Most, yeah, yeah, to me that's the most significant piece of the of the uh, case here. I almost said piece of the cake here, but uh, <laughs> piece of the case here. So, uh, so this does not mean that all uh, private businesses can exclude services to same-sex couples on religious grounds. Here, the Supreme Court issued a, a fairly narrowly. Uh, uh, narrowly construed decision which says that if the place of public accommodation involves expressive, creative, free speech, that is then protected by the First Amendment. And the First Amendment obviously would supersede uh, the state law that uh, required the pub place of public accommodation or prohibited the place of public accommodation from discriminating. Okay, so again, it has to have some creative or expressive speech involved. And if it does, uh, then the individual, uh, the business in this case, can refuse to provide the service. So I don't want this to be overly construed uh, to say that all businesses now that, that serve the public, even though they're private businesses, all businesses that serve the public still do not have a right to discriminate uh, against LGBTQIA plus individuals. Uh, but if the place of public accommodation, the private employer does not agree with the LGBTQIA uh, uh, agenda or status, uh, then and, and that business involves expressive creative works, then the law would go too far and the individual's First Amendment rights then trump uh, the, the state's uh, interest in compelling the person to serve the LGBTQIA individual. So yeah, again, that's a great very explanation of it, Bert. I, that uh, helps bring some clarity to what the decision was and why. I, that's some great insight there. All right. So now I'm going to put on my professorial hat here, Phil, and we're going to shift gears and talk about 
uh, the one that was discussed last week, and that is the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action in college admissions. So the, the court held uh, that race conscious admissions policies are unconstitutional because they, quote, lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, and involve racial stereotyping and lack meaningful endpoints. That's a quote from the case. The court uh, uh, basically took a decision from 1978, which was called Grutter versus Bollinger. And in that court, in that case, in a five to four decision back in 1978, the Supreme Court had held that universities, quote, narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions to further a compelling interest in obtaining educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body does not violate the Equal Protection Clause. And in that case, the court suggested that at some point, such race-conscious admissions policies would no longer be necessary. So sort of with that background, we then look at this case. So there were two cases actually that were brought. Uh, in one of the cases, the group argued that the private university's admissions policies that include racial preference preferences violate Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits race discrimination by entities that receive government funding when the policies penalize Asian American applicants, seek racial balancing, overemphasize race, and ignore racial uh, race neutral alternatives. In the second case that was brought, the group alleged that public universities violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits government entities from discrimination based on race when they reject race-neutral admissions alternatives because they would change the makeup of the student body without proving that the alternatives would harm the academic quality or educational benefits of a diverse student body. Okay, so that's right, a lot so of- You, you uh, gotta explain there. that, Professor. <laughs> Uh, in some layman's terms for us, please. So, so, so I'll try my, my best, and I'm going to actually quote Chief Justice Roberts, who said that their decision should not be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, but the applicant must be treated based on his or her experience as an individual and not on the basis of race. Okay, so with uh, all that, of that in mind- If you would have said that from the beginning, I would have followed you. So yeah, so I wanna talk about this. We're gonna break it down a little bit here. Nick, if you could pull up uh, so, some old text that I sent you this morning and, and show the folks this, this old text, uh, that, that would be really helpful. Yes, I want that. There's some that old looks text. like something Phil, from chat GPT to me, Bert. <laughs> So what this says is this was the original bill. You know how I always like to go back to the authority itself, Phil. And what this one says here, this is the Equal Protection Clause of the uh, 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And what the 14th Amendment says is that uh, no state, says in part, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the U.S., nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then here's the important one. 
nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Okay. And so the Supreme Court seized on that equal protection clause when it uh, issued its decision striking down affirmative action in college admissions. And they said that if you have uh, a racial preference in your college admissions process, then you are denying other people uh, who are not of that race, that racial preference, uh, you're denying them the equal protection of the laws. So uh, it, that's really what the case boils down to. Now, I wanna take a look at one other piece of text that I sent to Nick today. And this one's pretty important because this is how I think this crosses over into Title VII. Remember, I'm putting my professorial hat on today. So uh, in the text I sent to Nick, this is actually the text of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what it says in the first bullet point there, it talks about that it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer basically to fail to uh, fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any individual uh, based on that individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, okay? And so that's what Title VII says. And then it skips a little bit. The next bullet point then talks about you can, or employers can actually discriminate if it's a bona fide occupational requirement. So think of like a religious institution, they have some leeway to discriminate uh, based on certain categories if it's a bona fide occupational qualification. Also think of uh, some settings where, uh, you know, perhaps in a hospital, people only want to be uh, be examined by somebody of their same gender or frankly of the opposite gender. There may be a bona fide occupational qualification. Think of uh, settings, there's been a lot of cases litigated on this. Uh, perhaps there are issues with um, physical requirements. Uh, firefighters, can they climb the ladder? Can they carry uh, a, a, an individual down? Uh, so there might be sex uh, issues there that, uh, that, mm -hmm. that allow employers to actually quote unquote discriminate. The last one I kind of threw in just for fun, it actually says in Title VII that members of the Communist Party or Communist Action or Communist Front organizations is used in the subchapter. The phrase unlawful employment practice shall not be deemed to include any action or measure taken by an employer. Uh, uh, with respect to an individual who's a member of the Communist Party of the United States or any other organization required to register as a communist action or communist front organization by final order of the Subversive Activities Control Board. Again, I just kind of throw that one out there just for fun to show you what's actually in the law itself. Now, let's turn back to the, to the serious piece of this. So one of the things that I've been kind of suggesting to people on the program is that as companies implement these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in their, in their businesses, they need to be very careful when doing so because the law itself says you cannot use race, for example, uh, as a basis for making employment decisions. Uh, and that's what the law says. Now, people who, who are advocating for DEI. In uh, implementing DEI, it'd be a lot easier for them to implement their DEI programs if the law was changed. If the law said 
that you are you, you're you're actually supposed to look at these categories yeah. uh, and make employment decisions. But the law doesn't say that. The law says you are supposed to be uh, blind to the protected categories. You're not supposed to use the protected categories when making employment-based decisions. And I think we tie this to the Supreme Court's decision uh, in uh, with respect to these these universities. Uh, and and affirmative striking down affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, I think when we start looking at that, this case is going to have much broader implication than just looking at affirmative action in college admissions. Now, there is nothing just, wrong yeah, I with. I feel like this, in, in a small, in a certain way, has really opened. Um, I'll be very careful. I say, it, but Pandora's box because it it now creates a lot of challenge to many years of practice that we've had as employers um, in, in our hiring practices or preferences or you know, um, particularly when it's like okay. I got two equal candidates, then I'm using one set of criteria or another to be a decision-making criteria. That's exactly right. And I think that's what, what the lesson here is, is that, again, as employers are seeking to implement uh, affirmative action plans, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, they need to be doing so very, very carefully because, again, they, I've said before on the program many times, it's expensive to be the test case. Yeah. And I could see one of these cases going up all the way to the Supreme Court uh, and the Supreme Court making that same decision that uh, perhaps the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution uh, says that, that you cannot uh, apply the law differently to different people. And here the law would be Title VII, which says that you have to approach people from a from a colorblind, genderblind, national origin blind, uh, sex blind perspective, unless it's a bona fide occupational qualification. And well, so, and again, maybe I just maybe just in short, we've come, maybe in short, we've come full circle, right? Um, you get these things introduced; it takes you in a direction, um, and and through the course of time, we maybe would come back and we come full circle. And we make decisions based upon what the intent of the law is. And as the court systems help give us some guidance and we'll have to, you know, lead our members and you're going to have to lead your clients in, in the right decision making. Any any final thoughts, Bert, just on if you are involved today in affirmative action planning and things like that, this doesn't mean stop the process of completing your AAP plans on a timely basis and fulfilling your AAP obligations. It's just being careful uh, in the decision-making of truly trying to hire the best candidates in that case. That's exactly right. And well said, Phil, it's, you know, kind of the idea of returning to a, a meritocracy versus uh, a, a, an, a tocracy yeah. that is built on uh, criteria that basically the law says you sh should not be considering. Yeah, absolutely. Proceed All right, with Professor Garland, anything else you want to cover? Pr no, Professor Garland today. I've exceeded my time by, by, by about double here today, Phil. So, but, but these are very important decisions. So with that, uh, I will wrap up. Well, and, and I know our, um, uh, our guest, uh, Tanya, she also has her law degree. So I'm, I'm sure she was having flashbacks to her, her days in law school 
and dissertations. Tanya, uh, I'm sure all that sounds very familiar to you. It does. I was trying to find my uh, briefing notes just in case he called on me, you know, just so I was ready. But no, great explanation. And I think the final point is really where it ties into what we're doing at AIM, and that is don't make any radical changes if you're part of an AAP plan. And the idea that I think we're going to be talking about today is you know, when we're seeking out the best talent, what are some of the things that we can do to make our company attractive to the best talent, regardless of the generation they are or a background that they might have? Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you think about the best talent, uh, Tanya, that gets us right into the topic. Uh, today, we want to take a little bit more practical approach. Last time you were on, we talked about, you know, generations in the workplace and employee engagement and the things that you're involved with, with AIM, that being all of our affirmative action planning, some consulting in and around these spaces and employee opinion and engagement surveys. And all this comes together because you're really trying to help organizations with their cultural development. And as we look at how they develop their culture and the generations, we want to just take a little deeper dive today in the practical side of that. I know you have a chart here we're going to ask Nick to bring up. Maybe you can kind of walk us through that chart um, and I know it's one of your favorite charts that you like to use. Nick, can you pull that up for Tanya? Great. Yeah, and also while he's doing that, I'm going to put a plug in because our WOW session um, this month is actually around it. So if you're still wanting a lot of these differences around the generation and maybe the why and how it's come out, um, definitely make sure you join that um, information on the, our website for that. But this chart, I just wanted to call back that what we've talked about last time is that there are multiple generations in the workplace. And just by nature of how our world evolves, we've all had different experiences as it relates to technology that was available, laws that were available to us. I think um, Bert did a great job of breaking it down, and we see that the law evolves. His um, reference back to the Communist Party is probably not something that anyone in my generation or beyond would think would be included in a law like that. And so it shows that the law does evolve as society evolves. And so we as employers also need to have an appreciation that the workers that are coming to our door, that are applying online, have a different experience than perhaps that we did. And so then I think the lingering question is, well, what do I do with this, right? because we're really struggling with it inside of our organizations. And it's sort of what I bring back to any problem that an organization has. You have to know yourself. Um, and what I mean by that is you have to have clarity around why are you in business? What is your purpose? Um, what is your vision for the organization? And finally, what do you value? Um, because we can't value everything. And so different companies have different values. It might look like safety. It might look like innovation. They might name collaboration as a value. Um, and Phil, I know you visit a lot of our member sites and we walk in and there's beautiful text on the wall. And my first question is what I love to ask any employee is how does that translate in your daily life? When, yeah. How do you use this in your daily life? And so often there's some stammering and going, well, we do a safety briefing at the beginning of our meeting. And if I get right. that answer, that's great, right? That's a start. We're actually reflecting back on it. But I think what we aren't very good about doing is tying together how does my performance impact the results of the organization and how does my performance, good or bad, impact the culture of the organization? And that spans across any generation. And so what we have to have is we have to have this commonality of rules and standards that we hold everyone to. And when we come around that and we can really focus around that, then some of the, di the differences that we have start to fade in the background because now I know I belong to the work that's happening at this workplace. You know, and I think the example 
example that you gave, I'm going to go back to the safety example. You see values are written on the wall. Safety is number one. You'll see signs, posters if you're in manufacturing. And, and you do. If you're Often I'll sit in on management meetings. I'll observe. I'll be a part of it. And, you know, I'm invited to participate maybe at the end of the meeting, but I have to sit through the whole meeting uh, to do that. And I'll start the conversation with hey, uh, safety is our uh, top value. Um, we want to lead the meeting off with a safety topic and somebody leads with an example of a safety topic. And that's a great example. And their safety performance might be great. And people can connect to that, right? They're like, safety is a value. Safety is important to me. And we work uh, safely at work. And we all understand that. Then you go to the next value, whatever it might be, and it might be communication or something a little bit more ambiguous and 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 you hear or see nothing. It could be innovation. It, it may be anything that is another value that they have, and there's no speak to it. There's no conversation that comes into that in the meeting, but safety always did, and, and I'm not trying to say don't do that with safety. I'm just saying that's an example where we live one and not the other. And then that that actually permeates the organization and you, you can see it and feel it once you leave the meeting. And, and I know you work with these organizations yeah. to do to on those types of things. Can you comment some in that space? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be interested to see what our poll says as well, because I do think on a typical um, process, a lot of times what happens is that an outside consultant will come in um, and they'll help with mission, vision, and values. And it all sounds really good. And sometimes we circulate it with the employees. But what we don't do is we don't integrate it into what we're doing. And, you know, you mentioned innovation. And I think innovation is one that a lot of organizations are wanting to be part of. And I hear, or I'll go in and I'll talk with someone, not our members, of course, but other, other companies, um, and I'll talk to them. Innovation is one of our values. And then I see their pay philosophy, and their pay philosophy is in to be in the 50% of employers. And I question this because I'm like, okay, if you truly are invested in innovation, show me where that flows through to your business decision making. Is yeah. it in the way that you have processes? Is it in the way um, that you choose to hire? You know, my very first job out of college, I worked for Clark McLeod um, and out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I remember going through training and we had the GRIP Award, right? And their values were growth, relationships, integrity, and passion. And I have a lot more gray hair and a lot of decades under my belt. But I still remember that because I was like, wow, people value passion here. So if I walk in the office and I have good energy, that's going to be valued in this organization. And that didn't just happen at training where everyone got awards. That happened. It was in our sales numbers. It was in our customer service awards. It was in the way that when they went to the Wall Street and said, we need to go get more money, they, they referenced growth is one of our key values. And because of that, we're going to do that. And so while this may not seem on its face tied to the differences in generations, what we know is that we need to have clarity around who we are so that as we're recruiting and as we're trying to find the best talent, we're setting the tone from day one about this is what it means to work at our organization. We're going to give you some company swag. We want you to wear it around town and we want consistency when people think of our organization, what it means to work here. Nick, can you, uh, I want to pull the, the, um, poll questions here that uh, Tanya was referencing um, as we can get that on the screen. So Tanya, to your point, uh, Bert, you jump in as you see fit, but the question is what, what group do you believe would be the best at defining a company's ideal culture? 
Um, and it looks like leadership is at 55%, basically, and employees at 44.5%. Um, and I think it, if now that I read it, as brilliant as the question was, uh, Producer Nick, um, I, I'm like, okay, so what does it mean defining or living, or is it defining the culture we have, defining the culture of the future? I'd love to see some comments on how people answered that. But Tonya, Tanya, what do you think of uh, the results here? Does that Oh, oh, look, look at the oh, movement as we go. Yeah. 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 So here's how I would answer that. I think it's absolutely leadership's responsibility to define culture. Now, employees should have a voice in that. And that's why we need to employ the tools that we have um, in surveys and talking to employees and be able to have that. But we need to have consensus. And, you know, sometimes I'll go in and there's 20 values on the wall. That's really hard to manage. That kind of defeats the purpose of what we're looking at. We want three to five pillars that we can look to and say, when we make decisions in the organization, here's how we're going to do yeah. it throughout the organization. Now, do the employees need to have a voice? Do they need to be able to say, I don't feel like we're living to these values. This is what I actually see. Yes. And then leadership can reevaluate. But if I'm coming to work from you, I don't care if I'm the second employee, I need to know what are the values, what are we going to make decisions by, and what is our mission vision um, around all of that? Yeah. I, I, I'm just going to chime in real quickly. I really do find this poll results really interesting because if you think about it, any culture is made up of the people who are part of the culture. And so uh, a company's culture, no matter what they say their culture is, it's still made up of people. And here, you know, showing that it's 50-50 leadership and employees, I think it really does show that we have to take into account, yes, leadership can define what they want the culture to be. But at the end of the day, it's whether you have the people there who can, who can successfully uh, uh, take on that culture. And, and I think that's the, that's the essence of what, when I'm working and I, Tanya, you uh, do the same when you're working with your members, I'm, I'm sure is leadership does define, this is what we want. And they're usually very clear on what that is. And I would also tell you, there's not a very big degree of difference between one employer and another when I hear them define what they want. However, there is a huge difference mm -hmm. in what employees define what their culture is dif differently than what they want. And that degree of difference is all over the board. So while many organizations say, yes, we want something that fits here in this box, that's the definition of what we want. When you ask the employees through surveys, what do we have? Man, that's all over the board. That's, that's, that's a very different answer. Absolutely. So we got one more here. Let's take a look at it, uh, Tanya. What do you think is uh, the biggest determining factor for uh, work ethic? And it's how you are raised at home is leading by 72%. Um, interesting. So let's just do agree or disagree, Tanya. Um, agree. Bert. Agree with uh, number one and number two. Okay. Under. Number two was... Uh, uh, innate motive from within. Yeah. So now we're getting into nourish versus nature, uh, a whole nother topic of debate. All right, Tanya, any uh, closing comments before we go today? 
Yeah, I would just like to say, you know, we've talked about these big concepts, but it's really understanding who you are as an organization and letting your employees know how they fit into that. And sometimes what that means is taking a step back. Once you define, hey, this is what we need you to accomplish, is taking um, a step back to say, can you let go of some of the how? Because our newest generation of workers really want flexibility and freedom to approach problems in a way that makes sense to them, that gives them a little bit of, but they want feedback. So it's just yeah. a balance um, of understanding how much rain you can let go of that how, but I think defining the what and the why we cannot overstate and oftentimes that gets overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tanya, I need to bring you back on the program. We're going to reschedule. I want to get back into that chart more and talk a little bit more about some of the differences between uh, millennials and Gen Z. Um, I think there are slight differences. People often confuse the two the same because we're, we're just now seeing the impacts of Gen Z, uh, but we'll work with, uh, with the schedule. I want to bring it back and get into that difference there. Tanya, thank you again for joining us. Bert, welcome back. Those are some great explanation. Professor Garland today on Center Stage. We appreciate that. And Producer Nick, I know there's a lot of talk out in Hollywood with the union and the writer's strike and all these types of things, but uh, you are not allowed to do that, Nick. Thank you very much. Uh, remember, you're part of management, so you, you don't get that opportunity. And we will be back here 730 next week, Central Standard Time. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for tuning in to This Week at Work. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your colleagues. Forward our invites. Share the link aimea.org forward slash this week at work or follow or subscribe wherever you get your news and entertainment like LinkedIn, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're everywhere you are. And you can be part of the show. Send your questions and comments anytime to info at thisweek.work. We'll see you next week, 7.30 a.m. Central Time when we discuss what's happening this week at work.